Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cupper. I'm John Perry. And today we're asking the question, will the future be dominated by games? So Eric Zimmerman is a academic and a game designer at NYU right now, pretty prominent person in the uh, field of game design. And he has officially pronounced this to be the ludic century or the century of games. And he has a manifesto online to that effect. The general idea that maybe this coming century is somehow going to be uh, heavily defined by games and game-like activities is something that I think has possibly some truth to it. And I want to explore in really three major ways in this podcast. So uh, first, I want to talk about games as a growing just entertainment uh, medium and art form. And then I want to talk about sort of applying game design theory broadly to other areas of life. And then the last thing I want to talk about is, will life itself be game-like in the future? Right. Well, the lines between game and reality blur. Exactly. Uh, so the first topic, games is entertainment. Now, um, the weird thing about games to me is that they're extremely old, right? I mean, you have these games like Go that are thousands of years old. You have all kinds of sports and uh, activities that are just as old. You have, you know, animals that essentially play types of games, right? Yeah, with each in other. some ways, uh, games are actually pre-human. Right. Because uh, play, at least, um, is something that exists throughout. I mean, dogs play and cats. Uh, you don't have to be very smart to get playing. Yeah, and all, and all these examples, obviously, animals playing, but also, you know, these games that are, are very beautifully designed, like Go kind of just evolved. I mean, we don't know who created them. They seem to be sort of, you know, really just folk games is the term that sort of just uh, developed over time and maybe they were tweaked and the rules, you know, uh, were changed and they sort of just became what they were. Right, in a manner similar to like epic poems or sure. uh, other things that survived from that same time period, uh, religious texts and things like that. So it's kind of weird that only recently do we have games as sort of a defined art form where we have creators. We have people called designers. You know, you might put the name of somebody on a, on a box for a game that was made on a certain date, and it's a whole industry around it. I mean, this is a relatively new phenomenon. Right, the cult of authorship came to games really late, really right? Late. Like in the 20th yeah. century. I exactly. Mean, uh, it, it seems like the first authorship in games was like uh, corporate authorship of board games, maybe, or like... Uh, right, they'd put Milton Bradley on there, but they wouldn't put the actual designer of the game for a while. But even that's 20th century... That's a, right, right, yeah, or like so, very late uh, uh, 19th century, one or the other, I don't know. But yeah, that's like, you know, a, a printing press era, pretty recent in innovation. But, uh, you know, for example, you know, novels started being attributed to authors, you know, in the, in the Enlightenment. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, know. but you can't, or I mean, even, you know, in a lot of other, you know, art forms, like I, I often think that, that game design often has more in common, say, with architecture. And say sure. with like stories. Sure. Uh, but you know, you can find people writing about architecture, you know, in you know, going back to Greeks Ancient and Romans Greece, and stuff. Right. And and you can find architects with names as you know, as early as like the Renaissance, for example. Um, but, but there's no, you know, game design writing that there's I'm not aware like game of. design theory that exist that's ancient or that's even old. Right? Yeah, I don't there's, I mean there's no equivalent of uh, Aristotle's poetics, for example. Uh, for games. As far as I know, that does not exist. Which Even is though the weird. same Greeks that were writing that theory about plays were also playing chess at that time for, or something. Or they were playing, well, I don't think they had chess they yet. They may not have had chess, but they, but they did, were playing some games. They did develop the Olympics. That's right. They right? were playing a shot put or, or a javelin so, throw or so they, something. They had yeah. games, right? But right. yeah, they, uh, 
Yeah, chess is weird. I think chess came out of India and it went through a lot of different versions, but it just, I think like the original version of chess even had dice in it and stuff. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, that's a weird one. But yeah, I mean, who, who designed chess? We don't know. It just kind of came about through multiple versions. Well, it evolved over time. Yeah. And that's something that we see in, in a lot of these old arts like drama and, uh, and poetry. But then at some point, uh, those arts seem to have a theory attached to them of how you do them. And then later after that, uh, you started to assume that they could be done by an author. And those those things seem to have come very, very late to games. It's a really interesting phenomenon. Uh, they're kind of a bastard child. They don't really get the respect or attention that other art forms get. Uh, it seems that uh, really just in the last 20 or 25 years have you started to see any serious work uh, trying to theorize uh, games. And so, I mean, we can think of what some of the catalysts might be for why games are increasing in... in uh, I think popularity, but also just in terms of people's awareness of, of them as authored products. And that's obviously driven largely by video games, right? And by the, the digital mediums that we have for games now. Right, right. Which makes it so accessible for, you know, one person to create a game like a Flappy Bird or something, put it out in the world and make, uh, you know, and tons and tons of people can have access to it and know about it. Well, and it addresses two of, I think, the biggest problems for adoption that games used to have, which is one the difficulty of sort of learning the rules to a new game right. and or getting in shape for it if it's an athletic game, sure. which, you know, that gets taken off the table with a, a digital game that automatically enforces its own rules and teaches it to you. Uh, and also the, the difficulty in a traditional game of finding other players, right? Right, which the network takes care of. Which the network takes care of now, but even in the early days of video games, you could just, you, you know... Just play the computer. A lot of video games are single player right. almost by their nature. So, right. We've now seen this rise in popularity and awareness of games as a result of digital games. And obviously, it's a huge industry now. The revenues keep increasing. Right. Uh, I've seen a lot of different figures claiming that it, it, in different years, it's past the movie industry or the music industry. Right. And it's hard, really, it's hard to tell what people mean by those numbers, if they mean in total sales or if they mean in, sure. in how much money they're paying out to workers or whatever. But but it, it, they do seem to be commensurate or similar industries now, whereas, you know, 50 years ago, the video game industry was tiny compared to uh, film. So they're definitely much more similar to each other, you know, in size and scope now. So it's clearly on the rise and it could keep growing in importance uh, in the coming century. I also have wondered if maybe, you know, games just become more appealing in an increasingly abundant future with like more choices uh, because I think some of the, the appeal of games, not all the appeal of games, but some of the appeal of games is in there these systems of very limited decision-making, right? Where you have these rules that really just kind of create these constraints on you. Right, right. right. That raises an interesting idea, which is like as technology makes us more capable in the future. We're going to have more and more choices. And maybe we might want to choose some limitations in order to make our life more manageable. <laughs> more meaningful and more fun and more manageable, Yeah. And, uh, I mean, to this effect, there's a philosopher named Bernard Suits who gave a definition for what he considered to be a game. I mean, there's a lot of different definitions of game. It's a tough thing to define. But he said, playing a game is a voluntary attempt to overcome unnecessary obstacles, right? And the example that he gave, or one of many examples that he gave was, say, in golf, right? right. Like, if, you're, if your goal is to just get the golf ball in the hole, then you could just walk up to the hole and drop the ball in. Uh, right. But obviously, instead, you take the most inefficient way possible, right. right? To try it like this. You take this long stick and you stand way far back. Yeah, a long stick with a tiny uh, head at the end of it. Right. And then you try to get the ball uh, in a tremendous distance <laughs> away and, from you. And that's when it becomes a game. So right. the more like sort of uh, 
our sort of fundamental goals in life, our survival needs are met, the more we might just want to start adopting these inefficient obstacles and putting them in the way uh, as a way to just make our lives more interesting again. Right. Well, and the obstacles might be chosen for how efficiently they, you know, uh, are fun to us rather than being there just because we can't avoid them. Right. And of course, also games are a luxury. They're a leisure activity. Like taking in all these inefficiencies is not something that people living in a uh, older and poorer century would be even able to do. Right, right. Right. Time for leisure of all types, whether it's, you know, passive entertainment or games, obviously has gone way up. And we can assume it's going to go up further as uh, more and more of us are put out of work. Now, there, there are some unique problems of possibly facing games in the future, right? And one of which is AI, right? AI promises to make games better in some ways because you can have artificially intelligent opponents. Mm-hmm. But to the extent that games are competitive systems, right? Uh, not all games are, but in some people's minds, but most games are competitive. Games can all be solved, right? A game like Go can't be solved yet by a computer, uh, but right, maybe because it's too mathematically complex at this time. Sure, but maybe a future computer could solve it. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, maybe, you know, some hyper-intelligent aliens that came down would play Go and find it as dumb and as simple as we find tic-tac-toe, right? right? So all games have a point at which enough intelligence applied to the problem can solve it. So as we grow our intelligence, and I don't really even just mean like com- single computers running AI programs. I mean like... Right, col- networks of individuals yes. or other kinds of, you know, collectivized intelligence might also count here. I think like the job of a designer to make something unsolvable and interesting, because the game always has to be just out of reach of the human mind, or it's, the human mind's not going to find it fun, right? Right. Or, what you want is something that's, that you can almost grasp, right? right? And if you can't grasp it at all, you'll walk away, uh, which I do with many complicated games. Sure. <laughs> or, uh, or if it's too easy, obviously it gets boring, like a tic-tac-toe. But, uh, you know, I th- there are solutions to that, too. You can tailor games to people's intelligence level or... Sure, the game, if it's very artificially intelligent, can learn you and adjust its difficulty level. But if we have a situation where AI software or collective intelligences solve a bunch of games that are out there, they might those particular games might immediately become useless and not fun because uh, you know swarms of AI players will come in and steal all the points or however the game works. You know. Well, and the thing is that just because a game is solved by someone else doesn't obviously that doesn't mean that you can't still play it yourself it, but you can't play it against them and have fun <laughs> well and I, I think that games tend to lose some of their luster i mean this is a, a bit of an abstract thing but i feel like you know chess lost some of its respect when uh computers kind of took uh, it over when uh, gary kasparov lost i mean i you know we've talked in the past on this podcast about uh, uh hybrid chess uh, where you know uh, computers and humans work together to create unheard of crazy chess and that's still going, but at a certain point, even that's going to get solved, and you're going to have computers who can figure out all the hybrid chess as well. Right, that um, does seem like it's possibly just an intermediary step. I mean, even Tyler Cowen in that book was, I think, saying that eventually the computer swallows everything, right? Right, right. and then at that point, it stops being fun. So there is maybe a period of time in which the AI can still have solved the puzzle, at least on some axis, but you can introduce additional complexity and, and keep the game fun. But at a certain point, uh, it, you might just solve the game beyond a, a place where you can uh, recover from. But anyways, those are, that's for people who are playing competitively. For people who are looking for more like ex- experiences or just ways to pass the time, uh, it, they may not be affected by that. But right. another issue I want to talk about is that obviously the games industry is affected by the same digital abundance concerns that all these other industries... Right, the other media industries are yeah. being affected by. Although I feel like they've done better from the beginning... 
uh, even though there's obviously piracy of games, that's definitely a thing yes. that goes on. Uh, they have, I think, two advantages. One is that they are technologists, or at least in the case of people who make video games, mm-hmm. they are already technologists uh, natively. So I think they can build directly into the technology that they're building their, um, their defense mechanisms against piracy. I mean, a good example of this is just how many games are now online only, right? Which is just a baked into the technology you have to phone home um well my first experiences with drm were all with like floppy disk games that like you had to own the manual right and had to turn right. to page three and ask you a seven. question <laughs> or some ridiculous thing right and that uh and those were in the pre-internet days when you couldn't just send around a pdf of the manual <laughs> um so yeah i mean i think they've definitely dealt with this they've had longer with it and they have um the ability to fight it uh, but I also feel like uh, games are very, um, I don't know what you call it, substrate-specific. They have a lot to do with the medium in which they're embedded. Like uh, mm-hmm. a console game is really different from an iPad game, for one simple example. Um, just the way you conceive of it and the way you build it and the way it would work. And I think that limits um, how badly you can pirate anything. Like, uh, let's say uh, my iPad game that I made gets pirated and gets distributed to all the people who have jailbroken iPads or whatever, that won't cause my console game that I also made to be pirated because they're on a completely different system. They work a completely different way. Sure. Uh, they're not, you know, the software is not compatible and neither is the method of cracking. So it, I think the, the increased technological complexity of the game's ecosystem, the fact that there are so many different substrates and that they are specific. To and the, they don't necessarily move that easily between right, from them. one to the next. Right, right, right. right. Uh, that, that I think helps them out too. You know, uh, movies aren't like that. Like a, a ProRes film file of the, you know, the master output is all you need to play that movie on every device in the world. Sure. Um, so that's like a fundamental difference. I think that's a good point. But I think, of course, another digital abundance issue is just the amount of competition. The sheer amount of games. Especially yeah, from absolutely. amateurs even, yep. right? And of course, indie games are a growing industry as well. Right. That's a place where they are no better off than the other media. It's, in fact, they're, they're probably uh, worse off than film because film is actually a pretty capital intensive thing to do even with technology, but uh, music and games can be made by a person at home with nothing but a computer. Yeah, but I also think that, you know, well, I mean, obviously arcades have come and gone, you know, different versions of arcades, but I think we're, I expect kind of to see uh, the rise of a games industry that is, you know, leveraging in-person, real-time experiences, like almost like a game service industry, you know, as sort of an antidote to like all the competition that happens in the digital space. Like, right, right, right. Like uh, sort of laser tag, sort of like on steroids kind of. I mean, that's one form it could take, but just the idea that it's another thing for people living in an urban environment to do together as a group. Right. They go to a place and they get an experience that they can't replicate at home because there's specialized equipment. Right. And uh, there's, But mostly because there's other human bodies that they wouldn't meet. Who and are staff there. members right. that can guide you, right, right? right? So like it might be you go there to meet other people and play with, or it might be you go with a group, like you'd go to a restaurant right. and they set you up with a fun game-like experience. Right, right, right. So yeah, that's... That's a really interesting thing. I mean, I think that's like a cross between, you know, the gaming parlors that we have today, like uh, the PC Bang type gaming parlors sure. that sell, you know, basically fast internet access and fast computers uh, by the hour uh, with like laser tag. You know, you combine those kinds right. of things and you can sort of imagine uh, what what that might be like. And that might compete with like even immersive VR experiences like Oculus Rift or something for some time uh, until we get to the point where we have you know, gimbal scopes or whatever uh, right. in our homes and we can, you know, do gyroscopic, uh, fully immersive VR in our houses. Um, yeah, but that's it, a while. Yeah, I mean, uh, it just seems like as retail places continue to close and, and 
you know, all these businesses turn towards a more experiential model that there's a lot of space there to do stuff with games um, and physical spaces that you visit. Uh, but anyways, mm-hmm. uh, let's let's move on to the second area. So that's games as as an uh, an entertainment. Let's talk about them as entertainment, as media, yeah. as like uh, you know something similar to to film or or music. But uh, the next thing we want to talk about is a uh, way that games can be seen as like a social science. Yeah. Or yes, as a social science, which is something that I feel about games. I don't know that that's widely felt, but also just you know applying games and game design theory to other areas. Which the the buzzword for that is gamification which most people have probably heard. Right. But I, I think the way I look at game design theory is, yes, as a social science, because to me it has a lot in common with economics or with psychology. I mean, I think really game design is sort of the intersection of like psychology and math together, right? It's like, what do a bunch of uh, intelligent actors do right, right when a, they're competing? In and, a given model system. And it's actually yeah. very much like what economics tries to do, right? They, uh, they create these models and then they uh, hypothesize a rational actor in the system and try to figure out what the actor will do. But games, uh, that's the design process. You have to <laughs> assume you have a bunch of players who are trying to win and what are they going to do and is it going to break the game? So the, there is, I think, a lot that economics and maybe psychology as well could learn from uh, study of games. And there, there's probably a certain amount of that going on, but I don't think it's formalized as game theory. I think it's probably done in the, under the rubric of like behavioral economics or something like well, that. Well, because as we mentioned earlier, I mean, obviously game theory is a thing and that's a branch of math, but game design theory isn't, doesn't barely exist right now. I mean, it's, it's, you know, some universities are taking small steps in this direction. There's some books being published, uh, but it's a relatively right, recent discipline. Right. To the extent discipline. that uh, schools teach game design now, they teach programming and visual design right for the most part, basically that's yeah. what they teach they teach how to make a game in in the technical sense of like you need to program it in this language and you need to make graphics in photoshop but no one's really <laughs> but they're not talking yeah. about like how do you make a good game well and the terms have not been agreed on like like you know you need definitions to talk about this stuff and even that's still kind of being hashed out but sure but yeah games i think you know going back to other social sciences and applying games to other areas i think games could allow you well they do i mean allow you to empirically test theories that maybe are coming out of economics or psychology, say, within a closed system of rules. Um, one of my favorite examples is there was a situation in within the game Diablo 3 where they had hyperinflation, right? <laughs> Not that different from, say, like the Weimar Republic or something like right, that. Right, or Zimbabwe. Which yeah. is like an interesting case study for economics. Um, and obviously, you know, one of the problems notoriously in economics is the difficulty of collecting empirical data and and testing things and studying things because you know right. you can't we just, only have one world so there's only been one big experiment basically right and economists can't just like get together like five countries and say now you try this you try this <laughs> and you try this and then we're gonna sit back and see yeah, what and you happens. do nothing right yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah, you, yeah you're, hey, all right finland you're the control group you do nothing what? Uh, we get, we get finland's like damn it yeah <laughs> i'm always the control <laughs> uh so yeah but i mean in a game space i think you have the potential to to test this stuff in a way that's obviously less destructive to national economies. Um, but also, you know, game right, and less infeasible. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, but gamification is also, you know, a motivational hack of, of types, right? And it can, right. in that sense, it has, I think, good uses and bad uses. So, you know, there's plenty of examples of, of good uses. This is where, uh, where this gets really interesting. Obviously, people talk a lot about using gamification for good things, like sure. getting people to uh, do, um, what's that, uh, the thing on people's computers where they do the protein folding? 
Right. Well, so Folded is an online website where people are playing a game-like system, but they're actually, you know, figuring out how to fold proteins in right. the process. And the rules of this game are just the rules of how the molecules interact, right? And so they've basically, they allow people to sort of run their simulator for them in a way, yeah? It's like... They're... Well, and it's crowdsourced, so anybody can go and play it, and uh, some people get really good at it and get really into it as a game. And as a result, they end up solving a lot of these protein folding problems that have been pretty intractable just by, you know, motivating people with a game-like structure and by basically putting a lot of human intelligence at the problem. Right, right. right. But there's definitely like a dark side to this, right? I mean, I feel like if you have that kind of power over people to make them do something like protein folding, which is good for humanity, but not necessarily good for that individual person, um, you could definitely see that being used in a negative way as a, you know, the way that I... And most fearful of this is as a power for, you know, in conjunction with advertising for mind control, essentially, you know, and when we're, we've been seeing the decrease of the effectiveness of traditional media advertising for a variety of reasons, most saliently that people aren't watching as much traditional media over the years. And that particular way of influencing people's behavior has been uh, losing steam. But if you have these little numbers ticking up or you have these game-like rules uh, and these rewards, you know, oftentimes they're meaningless rewards, but they feel meaningful to you and they can influence you to do things that are against your own interests. And I feel like uh, they can really drive people to uh, to consume things or agree to things that they shouldn't uh, consume or agree to. Right. So, you know, there's a little bit of gamification going on uh, with all the notifications you get on your cell phone sure. from different social networks with the little number the ticking little number, up. and that's just tearing your eyes back onto Facebook. So that's relatively innocuous, although obviously Facebook wants to do that to sell you ads. But I think you could potentially see this done uh, for even more uh, straight up... Uh, you know, diabolical things. Well, I mean, to me, the most uh, frightening use of this is that, you know, again, another definition that's been put forward for games, I think this one comes from Sid Meier, is, uh, you know, it's a series of interesting decisions, right? Games are very much about choices. You give the player interesting choices, and uh, that's what makes a game a game and and less so in other art form, Right. right? But, you know, game designers also can create what are called false choices, right? And this is often considered bad game design, but uh, sometimes it's actually done very intentionally by large players in the games industry, actually. I saw a talk at a big uh, games conference uh, by a guy in the industry named Randy Pitchford, who's the CEO of of Gearbox Games currently. And uh, he actually opened his talk with an example of a false choice that comes from magic, right? Okay. uh, in this, the magician has two decks of cards, right? Right, right, right. And, and one of the decks is a trick deck, right? And that's the blue deck, say. And then another deck is just a normal deck. That's the red deck, right? And so the first thing that the magician does is offer the audience, uh, somebody like out of the audience, right? Which deck do you like? And the phrasing of that's really important. Like, do you like the blue deck or the red deck? And so if the person in the audience says, I like the blue deck, then the magician says, great, I'm going to do a trick with the blue deck, which right. I wanted to do a trick with all along. Right, because that's the trick deck. Exactly. Right. But if the p- person says, I like the red deck, then the magician says, here, you can have it as a gift. Now I'll do a trick with the blue deck. So no, like whether the person picks path A or path B, right. it always goes to the same place. But you'd have to have sort of seen the show to know that because it, it creates an expectation that the opposite was going to happen, even though it never was. Right. And a lot of the big games that are coming out now that are very narrative driven and very influenced by movies 
uh, are full of these kinds of false choices. And that was actually the point he was making. And he was, he was coming down on the side of it doesn't matter if it's a real choice. It's important that they just make a choice, right? And so, <laughs> I mean, I mean, he's just trying to sell games. So it's, again, sure. it's not that nefarious. It's not like you know it, the fact that Facebook lures you back and looking at their ads is not that scary. But if you were to apply this on a broader scale to society to present them with false choices so that they feel like they are doing something when they're really not, and yet they're still being, you know, herded down the path that you want them to go down. Right. That's, you know, that's one dystopia you could imagine that's that's not necessarily a place you want to be. Right, right. Well, you can imagine that being turned not just to uh, keep eyeballs on the game, which is, I think, the way that's used now, but really to make people think they've figured something out when, in fact, they've just been guided to it, you know? Right. It's just, it's an insidious and it's, type of mind control where people think that they, I mean, that's, they came up with it themselves, you know? Right. right? Well, it's a kind of inception, right? It's sure. like, uh, it's like you're planting a, an idea in somebody's mind and they don't really, they think that it's theirs. They think, oh, I figured out the path. But in fact, the path was just being told to them. Um, but it was being told to them in such a way that the false choices convinced them there was something else going on. And I think that's, I mean, that's a, an example of using the tropes of a game but without maybe the most rigorous definition of a game to to alter the world. And that's what this gamification buzzword is really about. And uh, that's, you know, yes, it can be used for good, but like any uh, technology of manipulation, technology of mind control, uh, like advertising, for example, which is just propaganda turned to commercial uses, it can be uh, it can be a, a very dangerous thing in the in the hands of those who are powerful enough to, z- to design what we interact with. So it, it puts a lot of power into the hands of, of uh, the designers of our world. Well, and yeah, I'm sure there's, you know, cynical people uh, in the States today that would suggest that our entire democratic process is a gigantic false choice game engine, right? Yeah, well, it, <laughs> that's, yeah, it certainly is a choice engine. And, and I think there are a lot of uh, times when, when the choice is a false one. So, yeah, I think that's a great example. I mean, you could see, uh, obviously, that being taken further and there being literal Potemkin parties that are, you know, just there for show and have no, uh, no disagreements whatsoever. You know, I mean, I guess obviously you could argue that is the system we have, but I think that at least the people inside the system don't believe that whether or not it's objectively true. But, you know, as the theory of game design (laughs) evolves and as people figure out the most efficient way to present uh, game environments to get people to do things... That can, power can be used for great good. You know, it can be used to teach people better. It can be used to get people to do protein folding and make the world a better place. Or it can be used for these much darker purposes. Um, so anyways, the third thing I want to talk about is whether or not uh, life itself starts to feel more game-like in the future, right? Just because of the progress of technology. And game-like, I realize, is a vague term. So I've kind of broken it down into... Uh, Some qualities of qualities games, of games yes. right, that might carry over into the real world. Yeah, and so one of them is quantification, right? right. I think when we were just talking about Facebook, like why, does, why is that even game-like when you see the little number go up that you have notifications? It's because it is a number. I mean, games themselves tend to have a lot of scores and values. I mean, you know, under-the-surface games are really math, right? That's kind of how they work. And so uh, in a future that's, you know, full of big data where everything's very quantifiable and countable, we're going to potentially be living in a world with just lots of scores everywhere. Yeah, right? just lots of quantified data. Everything is getting counted. And then uh, also, because of all the computing power we are likely to have, everything will be getting crunched, too. And right. you'll, be, you'll be able to not just have the raw data, but to have comparisons of that data 
uh, with other people and with other times, with other yous from the past, things of that nature. So that creates a kind of score-like uh, quality uh, from that data. Right. If you, I mean, people can say count calories now, but in the future you could eat a sandwich and immediately a display in the corner of your glasses could increase exactly amount yeah, bite by bite right Right, and then that feels game like right whether that's even really a game i mean there's not maybe a goal involved but it's still because you're keeping track of these numbers it makes life feel like you're in some sort of weird game another sort of game like quality that i've identified is that games obviously need well-defined rules right whereas life in general tends to be very fuzzy usually right. Well, that's often how the game accomplishes the quantification, right? Is yeah. Through the, the rule is the interface between whatever you're doing and the numbers that you're generating. Right. But in the future, you know, as more things move into the code space, right? We've talked about the, the sort of Larry Lessig right. comparison between programming code and legal code, right? Which is that they both sort of enforce uh, reality, right? But, you know... Programming code is much more rigid, right? It, it's less fuzzy. It creates this sort of well, it's perfect... kind of self-enforcing, right? Yeah. Because it's the way that it's written, it will just execute on the machine that's executing it. Uh, so that has the option for basically perfect enforcement of contracts or laws that have been um, encoded uh, in onto a computer. So, like the more digital the future is, in a sense, the more inherently. Uh, clearly defined the rules are, the right. permissions and the accesses to different activities in different areas become more rigid. And that also feels game-like because, again, games tend to be more rigid uh, in general, I think. Right. Um, another game-like quality uh, that the future might have is lower stakes. Now, this is sort of, this is something I think we could all hope for. Obviously, the, the future might be very dangerous for a variety of reasons we've talked about before on the podcast. Right. But in... At the same time, you know... But the historical pattern, if it holds, is yeah. that we've been going from a more brutish to a less brutish, more dangerous to less dangerous right. world over time. And we can assume, if we don't have catastrophe, uh, that, uh, that that may continue. So we may find ourselves in a world, let's say, for example, of self-driving cars, which has you know 30,000 fewer deaths in the U.S. per year. And every day, you know, the, probably the most dangerous thing that I do or you do... Um, has been taken out of our life. But it's not to say we have no danger in our life or that we are living forever or something, but that still will be a lower stakes world than the one in which we live now. Which I feel, think inherently is a little bit more like living your life at play when you remove these like biological imperatives and risks and survival sure, needs. Sure, if we went as far as to provide a guaranteed income or something and everybody had all their basic needs met, then all the things you do, your work or um, your pursuits, your hobbies might all feel sort of game-like in the sense that uh, you can fail at them and you won't die or starve. You just learn and start again. And, and the reason I'm saying that games sort of inherently have lower stakes is like, just if you use the example of like dogs fighting, right? Um, the difference between dogs fighting and dogs playing is just whether or not they actually bite, right? You just, it becomes play once you kind of take away the higher stakes of actually biting sure, and harming. Sure, I mean, there's tons of examples of this. Um, sports are different from war in the sense that you don't kill one another, you just hit one another. And, exactly. And everybody wears pads. <laughs> yeah, uh, so once life is less dangerous, maybe it's inherently more game-like is what I'm saying. Yeah. Right, it's, 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 it's a feature of games is that they seem to uh, lower the stakes um, in order to allow you to simulate some danger without actually experiencing it. 
Another thing that games do, uh, we should talk about, is um, they present you with a limited number of choices, right? Uh, uh, like a menu of options. Right. So games are sort of these engines for creating choices for people. And th- this overlaps a lot with just good interface design, right? And as we're sort of dealing more and more with through interfaces in the future, right? Uh, there's a need for, to sort of like cut through all the noise of all the data and see just uh, the key options that you want, right? And so like you're picking option A, option B, option C, just in your regular life, right? Because maybe a lot of the sort of everyday boring tasks are increasingly being handed over to an AI assistant, say. You're operating at a much higher level, right? Which is another thing that people do in games, right? They don't necessarily, you know, players in games don't have to make, you know, really annoying, boring decisions or rote activities like... uh, you know, finding which key in their pocket to pull out and put into the door and turn it. You just walk up to the door and you push space bar or something. Right, right. right. Those things might just get taken care of for you by technology in a much similar way to the the way that, uh, you know, games do it, obviously, because they're limited simulated systems. They have no choice but to, you know, simplify the world. Um, But uh, I think we might just find that we choose to do that throughout the world as we get the technological capacity to do it. So that's another way that life might just more come to resemble a game, uh, a sort of endless game that you uh, are always in. Or to give like maybe another concrete example, like if you come home, right, uh, from work and you want to watch something, now you could go on your TV or on your computer and you can pick from a gigantic menu of things you could watch. But if you had really good AI, really good recommendation algorithms in the future, your options might be something like intellectual stimulation, put me to sleep, and mindless entertainment. Right. And then the recommendation algorithm does the rest. So you have like three really high level options. And that again, starts to feel more like in an adventure game or something when you just have three yeah, that's interesting. I, seriously, that, that interface, but not that functionality is already arriving because I think right now, if I were to go on my phone and look at the Google Now it would probably show me three uh, TV shows that I could watch. And I think the way that its algorithm works is it just steals from my search uh, history. So it's like, there's three shows that you've previously searched for. Tap them and you'll start watching them right now. Which uh, I've seen that ad on there and I've it's never quite offered me something I wanted to watch at that moment. So I've never actually done it. But it does seem like eventually once the recommendations get good enough, that's going to work. And that's going to just, I'm going to end up watching things that I didn't know existed because they got surfaced. Yeah, it's not that great right now, but yeah. The recommendation part of it, I think, is still like weak. Um, Like I said, I think Google's just going through my search results, uh, my search history and just matching things to their, their, what they have in the Play uh, Store. But uh, I think uh, over time that might get better and they might be able to, you know, directly synthesize exactly what, uh, you know, I want to have my brain uh, relax or something um, based on a current reading of my brain state or something. But they they don't have any kind of technology like that at the moment, so... Right. And that's, of course, just applying it to like how you're going to entertain yourself, you know, at night after work. I mean, obviously, throughout the day, a lot of things could be boiled down uh, into a couple high level uh, decisions that you are in the driver's seat for, but that an algorithm does the rest. Sure, exactly. And I think, uh, you know, giving people enough choices so that they feel empowered and feel like they're in control of their lives, uh, but not so many choices that they become paralyzed, if that's really a thing, uh, is going to be a key design question. Uh, not just for games, but for all systems that people interact with going forward. Uh, and so it's something that really people need to think about who are, who are involved in that. 
like we were talking about, you know, that can lead to good or bad. If it's done well, that could really liberate you from tons of drudgery and really just leave you with the, the most important decisions. But if it's done poorly, it could hide from you important things and potentially uh, steer you to a, a future you don't want. Right. Well, when you only have three choices, like what are the choices that you're not seeing, right? And then that kind of can quickly go to that dystopian place where it's like... If those biases are not set right, that could be very problematic. Well, and if you can't, you know, kind of like click the advanced settings tab in the corner and then escape right. out of the preset menu and well, get even to... even if you can, though, I feel like some... If it's if the options aren't good, some people will never get into that menu, whether they can or they can't. Sure. And uh, they could still be really negatively impacted by, uh, you know, somebody who doesn't have their best interest at heart designing those systems, which is something I would obviously worry about since the people who would be designing those systems would probably be people working for private corporations whose, you know, interest is in uh, keeping their jobs. Maybe trying to show you ads. Yeah, or something like that. Assuming that advertising uh, continues to be... Continues well, to be a thing, because that's uh, dependent on there being a consumer economy that uh, that needs advertising. But that's a whole different a whole podcast topic now. Podcast topic for another day. Thanks very much for listening, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll get back at you with more podcasts like this. See you next week. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.